Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a, another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. Where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, up there in New York City. It's Bubble Boy. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com. John, good evening, sir. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm glad that you're calling me by the bubble, bubble Boy nickname that everyone far and wide recognizes me for. The, any, any, like, anywhere I go, they're like, there's a Bubble Boy. And all doing all doing his bubble thing. What's your favorite Seinfeld episode? Mm, that's a tough one. I've always really liked the one where uh, with uh, the clown in that the better let me restart that with um <laughs> where that fire breaks out at that birthday party george goes to mm-hmm. and he shoves kids and elderly women out of the way and it just has that wonderful moment where he tries to justify his behavior and a firefighter walks up to him and says what is the matter with you and george's <laughs> response is just simply i don't i can't say i know mm-hmm. uh that is an all-time an all-time moment um what might be an all-time moment in a matter of days taping this right before game four of the world series john um the phillies now up to one uh a homer their way into a game three win uh mac and d were in attendance for this one i saw uh in citizens bank park is what it's still called right we're still calling it that is that what it is yeah, or is it I, I, I don't i don't think they've had a new owner since okay a, um new, new either stadium. way the Phillies just thrash uh, McCullers, who may or may not have been tipping his pit- pitches, depending on who you ask and who you uh, read and talk to. But, uh, John, what was your uh, feeling coming out of the Phillies going up 2-1 in this series where they could they get in this in Philadelphia this week? They could. And I, I personally felt like the Phillies were probably going to win game three. I thought the atmosphere was going to be good. I thought the, the pitching had lined up well for them. You know, Philly has been... A miserable place for anyone else to play at this point. Um, I don't know. Obviously, it really did seem like McCullers had some kind of giveaway or tip that was happening with regards to his stuff. I, I know a lot of people online pointed out his leg lift. I think from the batter's point of view, it was more likely that they saw the glove come higher um, for breaking balls than they did for fastballs. As you saw, same similarly with the leg lift, he was lifting his leg higher for, I think, sliders than for sinkers. So that obviously was a big part of it. I was a little surprised, too, by Dusty Baker's slowness or reluctance to put a new pitcher in and to let McCullers face the top of the order a third time, which turned out to be obviously a uh, – I don't want to call it a significant mistake because those two home runs from Schwarber and Hoskins made it uh, – turned it from a 4 nothing game to a 7 nothing game, and Pusen didn't really do anything from that point going forward. But still, I mean, that takes the that took the Astros from you know having like a twenty five percent chance to win the game to roughly like a five percent chance to win the game, if even that. So I was a little skept- I was a little confused by that on Dusty's part, especially considering that Houston's bullpen really hadn't had to do too much work in the series so far, and that they'd had the extra off day by virtue of the rainout. So I'm a little. Uh, for me, it's like I, I think Philadelphia is doing exactly what. The, Philly, the Phillies are doing exactly what they need to do in order for them to win the series. Their, their lineup is producing. Their bullpen is holding. They're getting good starts uh, for the most part out of their starters. I know Nola didn't have a particularly great game one, but, and, neither did Wheeler, and neither did Wheeler in game two, but they got a great start out of Ranger Suarez. Uh, the rainout really helped them in terms of their pitching plans, allowing them to push Noah Syndergaard and that potential bullpen game all the way back to game five, which the other aspect of it now is if Philly wins game four and that looks like a potential clincher, 
you know, they could they could either go with Syndergaard in a bullpen game and hope that that's enough, or they could throw Zach Wheeler out there and try to finish it right then and there and not have to go back to Houston. So Philly is in a really good position. I'm a little more confused. Like, I don't necessarily think Houston has played poorly here. I think the falling apart in game one, I, I put most of that blame on Justin Verlander for just uh, what was really a terrible start from him when the Astros needed much, much more. And, just continues what's been a very strange career of World Series struggles for him for whatever reason. And maybe it's just by this point in the season, he just does not have enough left in the tank. But, you know, really has not ever looked good in the World Series and did not look good at all in Game 1. Obviously came back in Game 2. And and yesterday, I think they were, just, they were out of it so early that I think there wasn't really much of a chance to do anything more. But I don't really think that the Astros have been all that sharp either, for the most part. This does not seem like a team that is, is hitting on all cylinders right now. I mean, obviously they, you know, you blow a five run lead, you give up, you know, a bunch, you give up five home runs and seven runs in game three and you get shut out. You know, you're not particularly playing your best baseball, but at the same time, this is still probably the more talented team. And if nothing else, I think uh, has the advantage at least with, you know, however game four is going to operate with regards to, you know, having Christian Javier on the mound to, I think you could argue too that Javier probably should have started ahead of uh, should have started ahead of McCullers and started Game Three instead of having him start Game Four. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I kind of doubt that made too huge of a difference. Uh, the other thing is clearly some disconnect as to what they want to do with left field and the DH spot. You know, we saw uh, David Hensley playing yesterday, which I imagine came as a surprise to pretty much everyone. I, I can't imagine there were too many people watching that game who knew even who David Hensley was. Uh, tonight, you have Jordan Alvarez DHing and Ledmus Diaz in left field. So I, the the Astros seem a little unsettled there. I don't think it makes too much of a difference, but either way, you know the, the, they don't seem as sharp as they did during the ALCS. I don't know how much of that is just that the Phillies may just at this point be a better team than the Yankees, or just better set up to face Houston. But um, I still think Houston is very much in this series. Um, you know, obviously they're only down two one, but. Yeah, the Phillies. The Phillies are in a very good spot. Uh, they they definitely have the advantage tonight with Noel on the mound uh, at home. Uh, I I think, and obviously, it feels obvious to say, but I, this is a must win for Houston because I don't know that they're going to pull three straight off, particularly with Wheeler waiting for them yet again and Suarez in Game Seven, who pitched so well in Game Four in Game Three. Uh, they need to win tonight in order to keep the series uh, alive. And I think, like you know, you and I said that this was either going to be a short Astro series or a long Phillies one. And now it's looking like it might just be a short Phillies one. There is a there is a really good chance they just finish this in five games. And I would be kind of astonished, but at this point, I don't know really that why we should be astonished by anything the Phillies do. They're just they are just chaos. They are the wind, you know, that is they are impossible to predict. It also just seems like the the long ball, we have to talk about it. Like they're just hitting a lot of dingers. And generally speaking, the last few years, the team that uh, out slugs the other team uh, come the playoffs and especially in the World Series generally speaking win the World Series yeah and that, and that should be no surprise too I mean you've seen how far Houston got this postseason with home runs mm-hmm. um, you've seen that the Phillies lineup was essentially built to be this way I mean Hoskins, Schwarber, Real Muto, Harper, Bohm like this was a power centric lineup Castellanos and for as much as I may have cost them defensively so far so good I think the other part of it is that's pretty much the only guaranteed way to score runs in the postseason. You've seen it, you've seen it over and over, and it's been said again and again how hard it is to string together hits when you're facing pitchers of the caliber you face in the postseason. You have guys 
you know, the average fastball in the postseason right now, I believe, is somewhere around 95 miles an hour. That's just mm. crazy. You know, everyone is striking out in the postseason. You are facing, you are only maybe seeing a, a starter once, maybe twice through the order before you have to see an interminable parade of very good relief pitchers. You have, you know, a team like Houston has guys like Luis Garcia and Jose Urquidy who can just, who are good starters who can now just come out of the bullpen and pitch two innings if they need to. Similarly, uh, with the Phillies, who've used Syndergaard as a reliever, who used Kyle Gibson yesterday, although I, I don't think Kyle Gibson is really anyone's idea of a, a high-leverage ultra-reliever. Mm-hmm. But the pitching is the pitching in the postseason is better than the pitching you face in the regular season, and the best way to score a run is to hit the ball over the fence because stringing together singles and doubles and walks and all that stuff is just extremely hard against these guys. So if anything, you're seeing a lineup that seems to be optimized for postseason production. Guys who can hit, who can put the ball out of the yard on any swing, on any pitch, one through pretty much five in that order, all have that power and ability to do so. And it's it, it makes sense, and that it, it makes sense that this is how Philly has gone ahead. They are playing to their strengths, and that one of those strengths really is we have power up and down the lineup, and that is the best, most guaranteed way to score runs in the postseason. Ultimately, game four tonight, how do you, the series might be over uh, next time you record John Taylor. How do you see this unfolding based on what you've seen through three games? Well, the series will be over by the next time we record, right? Because yeah. it's the game seven is scheduled for Sunday if we even get That's that. That's true, far. yeah. So no matter um, what, the series is over. I, I still think, I, I still think we're going to get a few more games. I don't see Houston going that quietly for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, again, tonight is the fulcrum. If Philly goes up 3-1, the series is effectively over, I think. If Houston manages to tie it 2-2, then it becomes a best of three, where the Astros have two games at home, which obviously is a big boost for them. It's very funny to me that the Astros are so can so thoroughly wipe out the rest of the American League, but they face a single NL East team in the postseason. They just completely go to pieces every time. But I still think this one goes at least 6 or 7. Um, if nothing else, I, I, I have no idea who's going to win at this point, honestly. But mm-hmm. if nothing else, I do think Houston wins at least one of the next two in Philly to force a return to Houston. Interesting. I think it ends here. I think the Phillies win all three at home and it, it ends in Philadelphia. That's my guess. That'd be amazing because I think that would mean that the Phillies didn't lose a single home game this postseason, right? Oh, that's true. That would really be something. And it would also be a testament to just how loony the Philly sports atmosphere is that, you know, really is a, an incredible home field advantage to there, there is there is the new money ball that is the new market inefficiency for teams when enough have games a, to host games <laughs> have a lunatic fan base that is loud and crazy and will fight everyone so that when you host playoff games the other team is immediately unnerved i know we and i'd said before it's like this is probably the one team in baseball that would be least unnerved given how much the astros have already been through and how much they, you know, kind of consciously carry around that emblem of, yeah, we're the bad guys, so what? But, man, that that, that Philly crowd up for Game 3 was really, really hype. And I, I think this is an atmosphere the Astros, at the very least, haven't had to deal with all postseason. You know, they only had the one the one game in Seattle uh, that they had to play, where which, since it was a long extra innings game, I think a lot of the energy got sapped out of that one. And then the the of the games they played in New York, I don't really know that the New York crowd ever got into that one in the two games they had back there. So this is at the very least the first time the Astros have faced a really engaged, loud, determined postseason crowd. And I think it did. I think it did make a difference yesterday. I think the, the Phillies very clearly feed off that energy. And so I think you know it, it doesn't surprise me that that has been 
in part a big reason of why the Phillies are here. You know, they play games their their presence at home is just huge, and that makes a huge difference for them. I like it. Uh, John Taylor, uh, last thing on the Phillies, though. Chase Utley and Ryan Howard's kids now being friends. They're Perfect. family, right? Like, this is just one collective family. All, all of those late 2000s Phillies just clearly love each other. And are and, and are I love that. Now. Yeah, I mean, Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins are, are doing the first pitch tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually kind of surprised it took us this long to get Chase Utley. I, I did like that for game three, they just brought out the, the heroes of Philly past with Dr. J and Bernie Parent and uh I, I guess brandon graham qualifies for this somehow he was on like that team he got a ring sure yeah if you're part of that eagles championship team you're 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 a hero forever um but yeah i mean it's, it's also like this that's the last that was the last good phillies team and a phillies team that everyone you know every phillies fan still has very fond memories of and, and loves very much so it doesn't surprise me that they also have these deep bonds with each other because well that was that was a really specific and and kind of like that was a really specific period of time where when you think about those Phillies, you invariably think of Ryan Howard and Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins and Cole Hamels and briefly Cliff Lee. And, and uh, I, I, I guess Joe Blanton, if you really want to, but you know, those were, those were special teams. And I think it makes sense that those, that those bonds exist for those guys who were on those special teams together. And also the fact, again, the fans will love them forever. I've always said that the, uh, the NL East is the SEC. Uh, in a lot of ways i've always it said makes that. there's a lot of chaos there's a lot of stupidity um passionate fans it's a passion of fans there's a lot of money mm-hmm. there's a lot of curses there's no alabama but uh i guess don't there don't, don't call the don't call the braves alabama you don't want to do that i guess i won't uh if anything it's the the tennessee volunteers um the mets are prioritizing john taylor mm-hmm. edwin diaz and branded nimmo above all other internal free agents this brings this is interesting so that compounded with starling Marte getting moved to center field looks like it's happening next year what do you make of uh that being kind of the thought process here and then i think we should group um david stearns leaving uh the brewers into this conversation because i think i don't know i, I don't think billy epler or cohen have commented publicly on stearns correct like i'm going to no and, and I, I think if they were to comment publicly it would be considered tampering to some yeah. degree or another because he's this is the thing stearns is still an employee of the brewers you know he's not a free agent he's not a you know he didn't quit the team he's still there um he's I'm just a little... not gonna be there much longer i, I think based no on I, I think here. this move is explicitly designed to to facilitate his exit from the team mm-hmm. i think he presumably wants to move on to a bigger team. And I wouldn't be surprised if knowing that the Mets are looking for a president of baseball operations, that he has started to kind of create the path that would lead him that way. I think that mm-hmm. makes sense for all teams, for all, for all individuals involved. As to Nimmo and Diaz, that also makes sense to me. When you look at the market for center fielders, Nimmo is pretty clearly the best available option and to a certain degree, the only real available option. I'm, I'm not really sure who else the Mets would be interested in there free agency wise. Mm-hmm. They don't really have an option internally for as much as they've said they're comfortable putting Marte in center. I don't know that they should. You look at Marte's defensive numbers from last year and from the last few years, you can clearly see someone who's in decline, someone who... Still is very fast. Uh, Starling Marte has not lost any speed, but whose range has declined, who his first step has de- has declined, and who also still has a very good throwing arm, which is of good use in right field. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can see it for the Mets, if only because I imagine they probably find it easier to find a, a corner outfielder than a center fielder. 
And I think Marte could probably hold his own, but I, I think it would not be a pleasant sight for them. I think they'd be much more comfortable having Nimmo there. As for Diaz, similarly, they're, the men's bullpen is not in great shape. Uh, they're, you know, Diaz was their best reliever last year. Their second best reliever, Adam Adovino, is also a free agent. So, you know, they can't simply go, okay, well, we'll just go to the number two guy who was in the pen last year and go with that. You know, you, you look at the depth chart for this team, bullpen-wise, for, for who's still around. I mean, it's Drew Smith and Steven Nogasek and Yoan Lopez. And, you know, granted, that's all going to change, you know, because you know, they're going to have to make signings. But, yeah, there, there are a fair number of pending free agents here. Uh, who are relievers, Diaz, Ottavino, Joely Rodriguez, Seth Lugo, Trevor May, Tommy Hunter. You know, that's most of that bullpen. It doesn't surprise me that they would want to prioritize Diaz because, again, this is something where they don't just have a guy internally who can just step up and do the job. Uh, he had such a good year last year. I think there's probably a good feeling of confidence that he can do this again. Um, so, yeah, th- both, of that, both of those make sense to me. I think it's interesting that when it comes to you know, suppose of internal prioritization that we're not hearing the name Jacob deGrom. I know in parts because he has yet to exercise his opt-out clause. So until he does, he is still a Met. But at the same time, I think when it comes to the free agents who they know are going to be free agents, I think, you know, you look at that list and Nimmo and Diaz are the top two on it. And they're the two guys who I think most, most need to return to this team for the Mets to continue to be championship contenders. Because those are two guys they are going to have, I think, a pretty difficult time uh, replacing when it comes to when it comes to at least at least to finding guys in in free agency I, I just don't think they're gonna they're gonna run into too many valuable or like for example just looking at relief pitchers you know if it's not Diaz who you're signing I mean are you are you are you rolling the dice with Craig Kimbrell after his miserable year are you looking at David Robertson at age 38 you know not a guy I think you can rely on the same way you can Diaz you know are you gambling on Rafael Montero's uh, transformation in Houston being something he can carry over? Are you going to invest in a 35, 36-year-old Kenley Jansen as he you know, continues the, the backside of his career? I think Diaz is the only reasonable option there for a team that does not have an otherwise have a good internal closer option. So yeah, the, the, those are the two guys that makes the most sense, I think, for the Mets to prioritize of their own group before they start looking at everyone else. I'm curious to see what happens here now. Does this mean DeGrom's out? Are we assuming DeGrom's not back? No, because I I would also like to think that because DeGrom is still on the team, there have already probably been conversations about what a new contract for him would look like. Mm. I think it is pot. I don't necessarily think that the Mets, if they bring back Diaz and Nimmo, that means that there's no DeGrom coming. I just think that it means that the Mets' three biggest additions this offseason would essentially be guys returning from last year's team because I don't really know barring Cohen going absolutely bananas with the amount of money he chooses to spend, how they're going to be able to add on to those three. Diaz is going to be looking for at minimum something in the $75 million range. Nimmo, I'm sure, is going to be looking for something in the 60 some million dollar range. DeGrom will probably require another hundred plus million dollars to sign long-term. So you think about it that way, you're adding, you know, DeGrom's salary essentially effectively won't be changing from what's already on the books. But then you have to add in another maybe 30, 30 or 30 or so million for what Diaz and Nimmo are going to be getting, plus arbitration raises, plus whatever else. Like, I don't know how much room there is for another kind of big marquee signing beyond that. Does that, is that going to be enough for the Mets if they bring those three guys back? I don't know. I, I don't really feel like it. I mean, I certainly think the rotation will need some additional depth. The bullpen obviously needs a lot of help. I think catcher, I assume they're going to turn catch over to Francisco Alvarez and just see how that goes. But 
you know, there, there are certainly, um, that, that's certainly not a, a, a given that he's going to produce. DH obviously was not a, 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 you know, didn't really work for the Mets much last year. And I, I'm curious if they'll do a Darren Ruff, Dan Vogelbach, uh, platoon combo next year if they want to try to get a more uh, consistent regular hitter to do that work instead but it, it does at the very least those three guys uh, Diaz, Nimmo, and DeGrom hitting free agency at the same time all three of them at the top of their respective markets it's gonna make it's gonna make life hard for the Mets to do I think anything beyond those three that qualifies as like a really big move which is also I think I, I just really have a hard time seeing them actually signing Aaron Judge. I think they will be in the market for him. I think they will do everything they can to make his price as high as possible for the team that does end up signing him. But I, I don't think ultimately they're going to have uh, the wherewithal or the room to do it. If Marte's at center, who do you think is in the left and right field spot on opening day? I would guess they move um, Jeff McNeil to right and have Mark Canha play left, or maybe they have McNeil mm. play left and Canha play right. And I, I don't really know that it matters either way. So I, they do have those options there. If they really do decide, you know, we want to play Marte in center, it also just does leave them without much in the way of outfield depth either. In an ideal world, you know, in, in an ideal world, McNeil is probably your second baseman instead. And, you know, and you have Canha as a starting outfielder, but you also have a little bit of depth behind him that isn't just Darren Ruff. You know, and this is also a team that outfield-wise doesn't really have a lot of depth in the minors currently. You know, Terrence Gore, Khalil Lee, those are not guys you're 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 looking to call up when things start if you need the help. So if nothing else, that's something too the Mets will need to focus on is we're gonna need some we're gonna need to add some outfield depth, particularly if Nimmo leaves. Um, one interesting possibility, Michael Conforto is still out there. You know, he never signed with the team <laughs> last year because he got hurt. Uh Presumably he has rehabbed and is in and is in good health and is now ready to sign with the team. You know, the Mets clearly showed not really much of any interest in bringing him back, although I wonder how much that was his asking price combined with uh, maybe some in internal knowledge that he was not 100% healthy. But definitely a possibility, at least for someone who they know, who has been part of the team, who is still, you know, capable of being a productive player. But yeah, I, I, I think... I, I, if I were the Mets, I would just be happier keeping Nimmo because it does allow you to keep some outfield depth and it doesn't force you to put uh, an aging star like Marte in center, which I, I, I just don't think that's going to work out for the Mets the way they want it to work out. I like it. Um, John Taylor, as Khaleesi the dog runs out to get her bone for this podcast, she's, she's all in. Um, White Sox, they have a new manager. Uh, what do you make of the White Sox kind of running back and... Uh, Going with uh, Pedro Griffal. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Do we know? Griffal, I would guess. Griffal, um, okay. It, it makes, I think it makes sense in the sense that, you know, he comes from a bench coach background. So he's a guy who is very much a, a someone who's, you know, who both is uh, well-adjusted strategically to the game, who is someone who has, you know, playing experience himself, who has been, you know, as a bench coach who works with the players on a regular basis um, he's worked all over the all over the place for the Royals in terms of the jobs he's done in their organizations. Um, you know, he used to play. He's you know he's played in the majors for a little bit. You know, he's done minor league stuff. He's he's done pretty much every job you can have. So I can I can understand what it is that appeals to him about the White Sox mm. or what what the White Sox, what the appeal is of what his appeal is to the White Sox. Why did that take so much time? Um, it's a, I, I get it. It's it happens, but. It's a little surprising that the that the White Sox aren't aiming a little higher, um, hmm. especially given that Grifol 
is someone who uh, the Royals didn't really seem like they wanted back in a sense. I mean, they, they let him go mm. pretty easily. I mean, he is going to be the manager, so that, that makes sense. Um, he also is someone who has not been part of a winning team in quite some time. You know, obviously he was, uh, he was around during the, you know, he's been with the Royals organization since 2013. So he was around for their world series run, but obviously the Royals of the last pretty much since then have not been world series, have not been contenders. So it's a little surprising in that regard that Grifol is the guy they went for, someone who also at the same time has no managerial experience, which uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little confused to, uh, as to that too, just because this White Sox team seems to be in that mold of, of clubhouse that would call out for like a Dusty Baker type, a Buck Showalter type, a, a Bob Melvin type, like a well-liked veteran players manager, it's similar to Bruce Bochy in Texas, someone where you know what you're going to get from them because They've already done this before. They've done it a million times before. You know, none of this is particularly new or old for them. Or it is old for them, rather. None of it is new for them. So that that is a little surprising to me. Um, I imagine to a certain degree they probably wanted someone a little younger. I also imagine to a certain degree for White Sox fans, they do not care who this is so long as it's not Tony Larusa or someone like Tony Larusa. If nothing else, this is better than hiring Ozzy Guillen. So I get that. Well, yeah, they it, interviewed it just... Guillen. They interviewed um, Miguel Cairo first, and then they also interviewed um, what's uh, Joe Espada uh, as well, who was a candidate, yes. but he was not uh, ultimately hired. So it was kind of a all around the place type thing, and we talked about it um, after the season ended that we thought that Miguel Cairo would just be installed just because he's already there. You can just promote from within and it was a cheaper option, but it's also like seemed like players responded to him really well and that he probably earned at least one year shot because like if you're not, if you're going to keep Rick Hahn and you're going to keep a lot of the same stuff and core in place, you might as well just stick with Cairo and stick with this group and just ride this out regardless of what we think from the outside to go with an outside hire and an unproven one was just out of yeah, all the is- people they interviewed. It's weird. It is a little strange that they went with an outside with they went with the outside version of a guy they seemingly already had in Cairo. Yeah. That also strikes me as a little strange. And again, you would think that if they weren't going to go the route of Cairo, that they would go the opposite direction, which is to say a Bruce Bochy type. Mm-hmm. Instead, they just kind of went with Cairo. And it's also worth noting that Griefall is someone who twice now has been passed over for the Royals managerial job. First when Ned Yost uh retired, and then the job went to Mike Matheny, which I imagine most everyone in charge of the Royals now deeply regrets. And then again, when Matheny was let go, the team went with Matt Pataro of the Rays instead of uh, looking to Griefall. So that's also interesting in that, you know, the Royals have twice had the ability to consider him as a managerial candidate and have twice decided they would rather go with someone else. Mm. So ultimately, I mean, this seems like a hire that was deeply influenced by the interview process. You know, you get yeah. the sense that this was someone that Rick Hahn in particular was uh, wanted to add. So I can't, you know, it's, it's impossible to say with any specifics as to what about Griefall they like so much. But yeah, on the surface, there are some things about this move that make sense. It's worth noting, too, that obviously as a Spanish speaker, he's a good, I think, bet to lead a clubhouse that is a lot of Spanish speakers in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is a little curious that, like you said, they could have, you know, they could have done effectively the same thing by keeping Cairo. I am a little surprised that the White Sox didn't aim a little higher given, you know, the team they have and the roster they have. But um, it also does strike me that this means that, you know, if, if Han can't get this team going and does in fact lose the lose his front office job and it seems like if that is going to happen he's going to get at least one more season to to make this right 
it also suggests that Griefall is not going to be part of whatever goes forward because this, if I, I have a hard time seeing a new regime sticking with the guy that the old regime kept on, particularly mm -hmm. if it's someone where the credentials and the resume don't point to anything as to like, oh no, this is like an Alex Cora type dude. We need to keep him on at all costs. And who knows? Griefall might very well may be that. Although I do think it's interesting, that's also a name you've not really heard when it's come to, when it's when other previous managerial uh, searches have you know have popped up. You know, Joe mm -hmm. Espada, uh, Matt Quattaro, guys like that. You know, you, you've heard those names before in, in connection with these jobs. Griefold, not really. So I'm, I'm I'm curious to see what he's gonna what he's gonna bring to this team in particular. You know, it's hard to say from the outside without being there. You know, involved with the White Sox on a day to day basis, but. You know, the most important thing for him is going to be getting that clubhouse back to a more stable, happier place that Tony Lewisa clearly didn't have it in, and being a more engaged, uh, kind of with it, uh, uh, manager when it comes to strategy, which also seemed like that, like Tony had lost that a long time ago. So, if nothing else, if he can succeed in those two categories, I think the White Sox would be just fine. I am just a little surprised though that this is the direction they went, and and like you said, at best, like. If this is what they wanted to do, hire a bench coach who has former playing experience and is a is and is a Spanish speaker and you know is someone they think can grow into the job, it is a little strange that they didn't just go with Cairo. We'll see how it goes. My, uh, uh, I don't really. I think you and I are on the same page in our White Sox optimism uh, being very yeah. Very and it's also it's gonna it's gonna take way more than a new manager to make to make this all work. Um, mm. at the, like I said, at the very least, if you're a White Sox fan. You have to be feeling good that this team didn't just hire Ozzy Guillen. You know, that that was something where when I saw that name come about in the interview process, like, are they just trying to make all their other candidates look better by by comp, by comparison? Like, mm. it, 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 hiring someone like Ozzy Guillen would have been the least serious thing the White Sox could have done. So if nothing else, they avoided that potential trap. And who knows? Maybe, maybe Guillen was never a realistic candidate there anyway. But that when I saw that name, I was just like, okay, no one is taking this seriously in Chicago. Well, they also ended up with Tony Larusa this last go around, so it was hard to get in that outlandish when the previous end result was Tony Larusa. No, but it would have been one of those examples of like you guys really just didn't learn from your mistake, did you? Classic man who learned from his mistakes, Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, all the time, Jerry all Reinsdorf the time. is a big learner. That's what <laughs> that's what they remember here. Um, John, unfortunately, we have to end on this. We talked a lot about Xander Bogarts in the big four. We'll see where he ultimately winds up. Rafael Devers and the Red Sox are reportedly far apart in uh, what their uh, what an agreement like might look like between the two sides. That when that's out now, that usually means this is not happening. <laughs> when that gets out publicly uh, to this point, but if you had it were a betting man, what do you think mm -hmm. Rafael Devers ultimately? gets this winter and also who do you actually if he doesn't return to the red sox who actually makes the most sense for devers so obviously it would have to be a trade and i'm curious you know what the red sox would prioritize in a trade like that and who would make the most sense for him especially considering that you know wherever devers goes it's got to be somewhere that's willing to pay him as well i, I don't think there are going to be too many teams looking at him as just a rental and, and it's going to be something closer i think to what the braves wanted to do with or did with matt olson which is acquire him and then make him a centerpiece going forward mm. so but with that in the mind, freeman domino had to fall first yeah and that's that's something too where it's like i think we need to see to a certain degree what happens with uh the big four shortstops not that obviously not that you know devers is a shortstop but i think whichever teams decide that they want to lock in one of those four guys as part of their future infield it makes it a little less likely, I think, that they would also sacrifice the prospects uh, needed to acquire someone like Devers. I, I, I see that more for for a team like 
you know, maybe maybe that I I don't know. I don't know Mets if Seattle sense has for him. The Mets would make sense for him, I think, although they do have Brett Batty there ready to play that role long term. Uh, that which is kind of the other thing. It's like which of these teams have, you know, long short end long term gaps at third base right now? You know, is mm-hmm. is that a team like the Giants? Is that a team like uh Seattle, which has Eugenio Suarez, but really probably needs to be thinking relatively soon about what they're gonna do after him. Seattle is that makes a, team... a lot of sense. Seattle makes a lot of sense. And but again, it also has to be a team that would have the theoretical payroll space. So you you, you mm-hmm. know, you'd want a Seattle or a San Francisco, or maybe I don't know, may, I, I don't know if the Cubs would want mm-hmm. to start thinking about that, but that's another team where we've talked about, you know, come by the end of next season, a lot of money is gonna come off their books. Um, and I think it would make sense for them to start looking at someone like, you know, Devers as a possible uh, anchor for their infield. I-, I can imagine the Red Sox probably have no interest in trading him within the division, mm-hmm. uh, which would knock out really any of those teams. Although I don't know how many of them would actually be looking actively for. I mean, I'm sure they would all want Rafael Devers. Um, Orioles would be someone to look at, but like, you said, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, if you want to if you want to talk about fit in a lot of different ways, I think the Marlins would be a really good fit, but they're simply it's not so gonna... funny. You said the Marlins because that was where I was going to say I was going to say the Marlins actually outside of the Mets made the most sense to me. Yeah, but the, the problem, of course, there is that the Marlins aren't going to spend the money necessary to make Devers a long term. But are we certain of that after this past year and where they're at? Yeah, are we I, I just not I, gonna I spend... just I don't. I, I just don't to me the Marlins have to demonstrate that they're actually willing to spend before I start predicting that they're going to spend. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I, I, I wanna say Dev like Devers makes sense for them purely on a roster basis. Yeah. But in terms of the way they build that team, the way they spend money, the way they do all this stuff, I don't really see them giving up the pieces necessary uh for a guy that they are, you know, Devers wants two hundred million plus. I, I really don't mm. think the Marlins are are in the market to do something like that. Um, similarly, like a team like Detroit would make a ton of sense, but I don't really know that Detroit, although Detroit, I guess, prospect wise, isn't really much to offer, but either way, Detroit also does not seem like a team that's, that's going to shell out $200 million when it just lost 96 games last year and does not look to be any conceivably better for the future. And then besides Scott Harris, who comes from the Giants MO, where I don't get the sense that they're going to be going Dave Dombrowski at over there. One really interesting team, and I think it would also have to involve, you know, looking at their Don't do Devers for Tatis Jr., John. I mean, that's an insane challenge trade. That is Mm -hmm. such a fun idea, but it's just not going to happen. It would be so cynical, but it would be... I mean, that's like the vindication, right? For the entire I would feel really bad for Fernando Tatis in Boston for a variety of reasons. But one team I think that would make a lot of sense going forward, uh, Minnesota. Hmm. I think the Minnesota Twins would make a lot of sense for Devers. Uh, they we don't just don't really know have... what they are. Like, what are the Twins? I don't know if it's how much of this is bad luck. Like, they just another season from hell. They've tried. They signed. Yeah, Grant. it's, it's not... true. They're they're in a weird middle position, but they're also yeah. in a position, I think, purely on a roster basis. You know, Gio Rochelle is the third baseman there. Mm-hmm. It's not really a guy I think the Twins are going to build around. I think he makes more sense as a utility kind of infield option anyway. Um, their farm system does have some good third base prospects down in it. Edward Julian, who is currently in the Arizona fall league, Alaric Sulari, who is, da- who is down in double a, or sorry, I'm looking at second base. I meant junior, junior Severino and Seth Gray, but they're still pretty far away as is first rounder County Cavaco from 2019. Uh, he's still down at advanced a ball. So there is room definitely for them to make Devers the long-term third baseman there without really bumping anyone out of the way. And for as much as it, Minnesota has struggled, these, they still have a very young core to work with. You know, Luis Arias is 26, Byron Buxton is 29, Jorge Polanco is 29, Nick Gordon is 27, uh, Alex Kirilov is 25. Like, 
Joe Ryan is 26. You know, we're, I'm curious what Minnesota is going to look like going forward in part because so little, so little worked last year. And in part, because this is a young team, almost to a certain degree, like Cleveland, but that doesn't really have any kind of set star power, particularly if Carlos and and he will Carlos Correa uh, walks. So I, I think it would make a lot of sense to them, particularly in the wake of guys like Miguel Sano or a guy like Miguel Sano never really developing into the corner power bat that I think uh, he was you know, projected to be. Devers would be a nice replacement in that regard. And as someone too, who can play him a premium defensive position pretty well. Um, and if not that, at the very least, you know, the, tr- the, the path is there for him to transition pretty easily. I think to being a first baseman down the road, which is another position that, you know, the, the twins have Arias there, but Arias strikes me as someone who can, play pretty much anywhere and I think it'd be a pretty regular DH without a problem and you know the, it's also a matter of uh, what what they think the projection path is for Aaron Sabato their 2020 first rounder who is currently in double a but either way it's you know I, I think Minnesota would make I think that a lot of teams make sense for Devers in terms of at least the roster fit and the potential to have open enough of a payroll to fit him but it's I think like I said I think we're gonna have to wait till the big four are settled to get a sense, because I, I imagine ultimately the teams that would be most interested in Devers are the ones who are already in contention position. I don't mm. think this is a guy who's going to be signed, even though he's young. I don't think this is a guy who's going to go to a rebuilding team for them to waste essentially the first year or two of his of his of uh, of his time there while they're still building everything else up. I think it makes the most sense for him to go to a team like San Francisco or Seattle or Minnesota or maybe even the Cubs that is a, that is closer to contention and in a place where he is a piece that can put them that much closer to a world series. Hmm. Well, John world series, speaking of it coming up in just a little bit here. Uh, amazing. Another season in the books for you and I, sir. Yeah, it's wild. Like by this, by the time we talk next week, the world series will be over and we'll be, we'll be talking free agency, which is, it makes me a little sad for as much as I, for as much as I love, you know, for as much as I, I, I like free agency talk sometimes, I'll, I'll always miss the actual active baseball we, that we get to talk about. Man, well, thank you for uh, doing this again with me uh, during this ride. Uh, one of my yeah, favorite man, it's podcasts. Been my, it's been my pleasure. Well, uh, can't wait for what is What will next? What is this finish? Year three for you and I? Yeah, I think so. I think we've been doing this three solid seasons now. One of my longest pen pals, John Taylor up there in Fangraphs. Pod pals. Pod like pals. Uh, well, tell the good folks what they can do this week to check out uh, all the great content and everything else over on Fangraphs.com, sir. Yeah, so obviously a lot of it is just going to be World Series stuff. As per usual, we'll be having gamers every night. One thing we're doing right now is ahead of our top 50 free agent list, we're doing our contract crowdsourcing, where you, the Fangraphs reader, can weigh in on what you think this year's uh, biggest free agents will get in terms of their contracts on the market, which is a, a big part of our top 50 stuff, too. So check out the ballots that are being released throughout the week. We have published 8 of 11 so far. The last three are coming out tomorrow. So check those out. Uh, like, I've not- like I've already noted, the top 50 will be out as you know once the World Series is done and dusted, uh, our preview of free agency. Uh, otherwise, we'll just be hitting the news as we see it. We'll have a little bit on the gold gloves and that voting if you care about the gold gloves for whatever reason you have to care about the gold gloves. Um, you know, there's, we have something coming on outfield defense in the World Series between Nick Castellanos and Kyle Tucker. We have a very cool interview today with Blue Jays prospect Addison Barger, who's a very uh, big name in the Toronto prospect community. You should definitely check that one out if you have not already. And also worth noting, too, that once the offseason starts and we get into free agency mode, that also means that it's Hall of Fame time. 
Hall of Fame talk time yet again, led as always by the erstwhile Jay Jaffe, our resident Hall of Fame expert, who will soon, uh, I believe, right around the end of November, beginning of December, begin his Jaws uh, player profiles of every person, every player who will be on this year's Hall of Fame ballot. So stick around for those. That's always a really good, really interesting read. If you care about the Hall of Fame, if you care about baseball history, if you, if you just like getting a nice in-depth look at a guy you haven't thought about in a few years, Jay's profiles are always a great read. So come on down to Fangraphs. Remember to sign up for a membership. $60 a year gets you ad-free browsing. Download our app, which you can now read our editorial content in. So you can now see all your favorite Fangraphs writers and articles on our app, just like you could on our website. Check us out. We're Fangraphs. We're, we're good. There you go. John Taylor, always a pleasure, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.